Welcome, everybody. Great to see you here today. Hope you're doing well. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. I'm happy because the uh, Huskies won in a uh, runaway last night. I mean, it was just a uh, landslide. They won by a lot. There was no question whatsoever throughout that entire game. Oh, my goodness. I went to bed after regulation, and I woke up this morning to find out we won. So uh, that was a great thing to wake up to. Uh, we've been talking about the Beatitudes, the eight Beatitudes of Jesus, and our series is entitled Rethink Happiness, the eight secrets to a happy life. And if you haven't gotten one of our study guides, grab one at the Connection Center on your way out. A lot of our groups are studying it. It's great for individual personal devotions, and we all want to be kind of dialing in uh, on this together. The one thing that I've said over and over again is that there's so much noise, so much chaos so many uh, competing priorities out there that I, over these next 10 weeks, want to just continually over and over emphasize this one point. Friends, we live for an audience of one. His name is Jesus Christ. And I want us to focus on Jesus. I want us to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and lead like Jesus. May Jesus be the most important person in our life, the most important thing we, uh, person we run after in our life. And we want to talk about that here together over these next several weeks. I read a book here uh, uh, over the last six months that I want to recommend to you entitled Think Again by Adam Grant. It's not a Christian book, but it's a very thoughtful book. And it's got me thinking about a lot of different things. He says this. He says, the ability to rethink and unlearn is an important skill and discipline. And I was thinking about that quote in light of our subject, happiness, and you know, our culture teaches a certain path to happiness. It's kind of a celebrity status, narcissism, uh, egocentricism, you know, me, myself, and I. That's kind of the cultural current so much everywhere we look. And then you add to that our carnal nature that is fundamentally selfish. Would you agree with that? Turn to your neighbor and say, you are basically a selfish person. Go ahead and do that. I mean, we uh, are born into sin, we are carnal, oh, that's enough already, especially you guys over here. Uh, we, we are carnal, self-centered people. And so when you take the, the cultural current and you add our carnal nature, it does not equal Christ-likeness. Surprise, surprise. We need to unlearn, we need to repurpose, we need to refocus, we need to rethink a few things and ask ourselves some very, very fundamental questions. That is, what really drives us? What are we focused on? What creates happiness in our life? Adam Grant goes on to tell a very familiar story. You've all heard it many, many times, the story of the frog in the kettle. And uh, you remember how that story goes. If you take a frog and you put him in a boiling, boiling kettle of water, uh, it's going to jump right out. But if you put a frog in a lukewarm kettle of water and then turn up the heat little by little by little and eventually it boils, the frog will just stay in there. And it won't rethink what's going on in their life and it will boil to death. And you know, there's a couple of applications. The first one is, is the most obvious and that is this, that you know, we can get stuck in our kettle, our cultural kettle, and not really be aware of what's really happening and all of a sudden lose our way, lose our faith, lose our focus, get caught up in all sorts of other things. 
That's one application, the most obvious. But, but the other one is what Adam Grant says as he goes on. He says, you know, there's something I've learned about the story of the frog in the kettle. And he says, it's basically untrue. I mean, that just blew my whole life right there because I've always thought the frog in the kettle was true. But, but he says, if you take a frog and you put him in a boiling pot of water, you know, research has proven that it may not get out, it will burn badly, you know, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, it's going to be devastated one way or the other. And the other part is, if you turn a lukewarm uh, kettle of water up little by little, the frog is going to jump out. And he says, so the frog doesn't need to do rethinking. We need to do the rethinking about that story because it just isn't true. And I wonder how many other things aren't true that we need to rethink, especially as it pertains to the true source of happiness and what's really important and what's the priority and what is the fundamental drive of our life. Something to think about, something to ponder. You know, Jesus talks about happiness and he uses the Greek word makarios, which means blessed or happy. Blessed are you, happy are you. What makes you happy? What's the source of your happiness? If you would fill in uh, the sentence, I will be happy when dot, 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 what are you going to put in there? I get a new house, I get a new car, I get a better job, I get more money. You know, what, you know, what is it that you put in there? Helen Keller said this, true happiness is not attained through self-gratification, but through fidelity to a worthy purpose. And I have a worthy purpose that I'd like to suggest to all of us, and that we demonstrate great fidelity to the eight Beatitudes of Jesus Christ. These are the fundamental teachings of our Lord. And he says, if you get anything right, Rob, get these eight right. Make sure you get these eight right. These are the eight secrets to a happy life. Now, we've been walking through uh, the Beatitudes, and I've said a couple of times that the Beatitudes are really the beautiful sayings of Jesus. That's what the Beatitudes are known as. And they really are the core, core truths of the teaching of Christ. If you were to take all of Jesus' teachings and boil them down to the most important thing Jesus ever said, it would be the eight Beatitudes of Jesus. In fact, I've said the Beatitudes are quintessential, sequential, and radical. They're quintessential in the fact that these are the eight fundamental principles that Jesus lived his life by and expects every Christian to live their life by. I kind of use this megaphone uh, visual because we see the eight Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and then throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, we see them fleshed out and teased out a little bit more. They become louder and louder and louder in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then even louder in the Gospels as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really talk about all sorts of things, including the eight Beatitudes being illustrated and demonstrated in various ways. And then even louder still, in the rest of the New Testament, the letters, as we read the writings of Peter and Paul and others, quintessential teachings of Jesus. I've stood on the Mount of Beatitudes and I've stood there, I thought to myself, I am standing in the place where the greatest person who's ever lived has preached the greatest sermon ever preached and shared the most important truth ever spoken. The eight secrets to a happy life. They're also sequential. Last week we looked at blessed are the poor in spirit. If you don't get that one, you don't get any of the rest. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they're nothing without God. Blessed are those who know they're sinners and they need a Savior. It's the essence of the gospel. 
And the second beatitude that we're going to look at today is blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are devastated, excruciatingly sorrowful for sin because they know how destructive it is. And we'll talk about the others as we go. Last week, we talked about beatitude number one, accurately assess yourself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Know that you need a Savior. Today, I want us to look at blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we read that in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 4. Now look at that for a moment. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I mean, that so, sounds so counterintuitive. It's like saying, you know, happy are the sad, or thin are the fat, or early are the late, or good are the bad. Add your own couplets in there. I, I mean, it just doesn't even sound right. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are deeply sorrowful for their sin because they know how destructive it is of their life, their relationships, and their walk with God. Now, I want to share some things over the course of these next few minutes that many of you will say, well, I know that, I know that. Well, I know it too, but here's, here's what I want to say about what we're going to talk about. This is the kind of truth that we know so well but need to hear about so often. And as I have basked and baked and soaked in this message over this last week, I, I want to even say that, you know, with, with great exclamation point. This is something we all need to think very carefully about. What does it mean to mourn? I want to share a few things. Well, it means, first of all, to experience heart-wrenching sorrow for sin. Jesus uses the strongest, strongest Greek word for mourning in all the Greek language, pentheo. I like what Derwin Gray says about it in his book, The Good Life. He says this word pentheo is kind of the idea to lament will cement us deeper in God. To truly lament will cement us deeper in God. In other words, if we truly, truly are sorrowful for sin, it will grow our relationship with God because we'll have the mind of Christ and we'll see things as he sees them. It's the strongest word, pentheo, for all the words in the Greek language. And it's a word that's often used in, in, in Greek for uh, being sorrowful for the death of a loved one. Let I me mean, just think about the most important person in your life passing away. And some of you don't have to imagine that because you've experienced it either recently or in the not too distant past. But imagine for the rest of us, the most important person in your life, maybe it's a spouse, a child, a parent, you know, whatever the case may be. Think about how sorrowful and crushing and painful and devastating that will be. Again, some of you don't have to imagine that. You know exactly how that feels. That's the idea that Jesus is using here. He's saying, I want you to be sorrowful, sorrowful. I want you to mourn. On Friday and Saturday this week, I'm going to be conducting three funeral services. And on Saturday, I'll be conducting two at one time. Something I've never, ever done in my entire life. And I've led a lot of funeral services. It'll be for one family who needed to wait because of COVID, to get everybody together and work things out. And it'll be for two brothers who died not long, not far apart time-wise, and sadly both took their lives. And if you think of it, I would very much appreciate you praying for this family. It's going to be a very devastating day this Saturday, a very hard day 
a very difficult day, and I would appreciate you praying for me that God would give me the words to say and that I somehow, some way, in this very difficult situation and environment be able to share words of hope and encouragement through Jesus Christ. Mourning, sorrow, devastation. Jesus says, I want you to truly understand what sin produces and may it really cause you to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It also means to acknowledge sin and its devastation. Think about natural disasters. I mean, floods and tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes. Here's a picture of the, the earthquake, recent earthquake in Haiti, and just, just a small, small picture of the devastation, the devastation and destruction that a natural disaster causes like a, like a hurricane. You know, God is a God of grace. But many, many people presume on God's grace and rationalize and trivialize and minimize sin. And they say, well, God is a God of grace, so I can do whatever I want, and he's, he's got to forgive me. And they miss the whole idea. They miss the whole idea that, that sin is a slippery slope, and the, faller that we, uh, f- the further that we slide, the more damaging it is to us on the inside and also in our relationships and certainly in our walk with God. Rather than having a contrite heart mourning over their sin, many shrug it off and say, no big deal. And yet, what did we study this past summer as we studied through the book of 1 Peter? Be holy as I am holy. God's standard is that we are holy, that we pursue righteousness and godliness. To mourn is to acknowledge our overwhelming sinfulness and realize we are sinners who desperately need grace and to be broken and sad in our heart for our sin and sinfulness. There's God's way and there's my way. And there seems to be a fight back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so we read about the seven deadly sins. And we turn to Proverbs chapter 6 and we read about the seven things God hates. And we read about the acts of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. And we read about those passages that talk about sin. And some will say, wow, God is so legalistic. Why does he have all these thou shalt not uh, you know, passages in the Bible? But those of us of faith who are growing in our walk with God realize that that is God's warning saying, run from sin as fast and as far as you can because it's destructive. And it will eat you alive. So run to God. Run from sin. Be sensitive to conviction. The work of the Holy Spirit in our heart of hearts. Guilt, that's a gift from God. Conviction, that's a gift from God. That's like a, that's like a big uh, alarm system inside of our hearts saying, watch out, watch out, watch out. Run the other way. Run the other way. Run the other way. You're about to be burned. You're about to be burned. Don't go further down this road. Don't run down a road that has been washed out and fall into an abyss. No, turn around and go a different direction. Be sensitive to conviction. Each time we reject the voice of the Holy Spirit, it builds callous. It builds callous in our heart. You ever had callous on your fingers right here from from working in the yard? You know, I can take a, a needle and press it right into that callous right there, and I won't feel a thing. Shame of it all is when that's true of my heart. When God's still small voice and the work of his Holy Spirit 
and the power of conviction and guilt. I don't even feel it anymore. That's terrible. God wants us to respond to conviction. How about scriptures like Micah 6, 8? He has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? He wants you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And yet there is a big tug of war inside of us to where we don't want to ask justly, we want to act unjustly. You know, we don't want to love mercy. We want, you know, to push our weight around. We don't want to walk humbly. We want to be narcissistic. That's our carnal nature. Paul talked about it often in Romans 7 and 8. He says, in fact, if you haven't read that lately, I encourage you to read it. He says, why is it that I know what to do, but I don't do the things I know I need to do? Anybody ever felt like that besides me out there? When I read that, I say, Paul, I'm with you, man, 100%. I get it. I know what to do, but how come I don't do what I know I'm supposed to do? And Paul goes on to say, it's because there's a war going inside of you. It's the spiritual man against the flesh. It's the carnal nature against the spiritual nature. And they are at odds. They are fighting with each other. You know, my uh, two-and-a-half-year-old grandson, Rowan, and my almost two-and-a-half-year-old pup, Rex the Great, like to play tug-of-war in the backyard. And there's great fun and jubilation when each has an end of the stick. And Rowan is giggling and laughing, and it is fun, and it is exciting. That's great tug-of-war fun. But when Rowan has something that he doesn't want Rex to have and Rex comes and takes it, that's no fun anymore. There's lots of weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> and it's, it, the, the tug-of-war thing is, is kind of fun, but not always. Well, in real life, when it comes to spiritual matters, when we're fighting to do our thing and not do God's thing, that's going to end up tragically. We need to despise sin. What does it mean to mourn? It means to de despise sin. We don't excuse it. We don't rationalize it. We don't cover it up. We don't call it by another name. We call it out. We admit it. We admit our mistakes. It's rebellious disobedience against God. It's self-centered, self-destructive allegiance to ourself. Sin is aligning with the dark side. And so we need to do what last week said, accurately assess ourselves, realize that we're sinners who need a Savior, and then we need to admit our mistakes, admit sin, and mourn. Even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, you know, pray these words, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our debts. Number five, finally in this part of the talk here to see sin for what it really is. Why do I mourn? So that I really understand what sin is all about. To mourn is to see sin as something that needs to be confessed. And here's the good news. Here's the good news. All of us have sinned, but all of us can go to the Lord for forgiveness. Can I hear a big amen to that? In 1 John 1, 9, what does it say? If I confess with if, if, if if I confess my sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not maybe, not if you're lucky, not hopefully, but he will. Anybody been forgiven out there? Anybody asked Jesus for forgiveness? Praise be to God. We can go to him and he will forgive us. But it does require us to admit, to confess, and to take sin seriously. 
I shared something on Facebook, and uh, as I've shared before, I do a, a little devotional each day on Facebook, and if you're not following me, I would encourage you to do so. But I talked about the subject of refinement. Hopefully, we see life as a constant process of refinement. It must be ongoing and unending throughout our entire life. Purging and purifying is not just a process for metals. It's a necessary process for your life and mine. None of us have arrived. Most people get that. But many people don't give thought to the necessary and ongoing need for personal refinement. What needs to be purged? What contaminants need to be removed? What impurities need to be eliminated? Where does greater purification need to happen? Then I say, you know, create a list or a grid or a plan to pray through and think about this daily. What refinement needs to happen in your thought life, I use as an example. Purge out the critical, the negative, the fearful, the anxious, the unhealthy thoughts out of your life. Replace them with constructive good thoughts. Things like love and mercy and hope and that which is helpful and compassionate and healthy. We are all under construction. Make refinement a real priority. Proverbs 27, 21 says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their praise. Refinement, refinement. Daily coming to the Lord and praying the prayers of the Bible. You know, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and cleanse me from every sin, and set me free. Cleanse my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Cleanse my heart, O God. May I be like you. Sincere, personal prayers of confession. Why should we mourn? Why should we mourn? Let's talk about that for a couple of minutes. Why be moved by wickedness and sinful addictions and uh, ungodly practices and habits? You know, why, why should we be repulsed by injustices and deceit, abuse? Because those sins, like all sins, are brutal killers. What do they kill? They kill joy. They kill hope. They kill relationships. They kill future. They kill lives. We could go on and on. What does the Bible say about why we should mourn? Again, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is one of the eight secrets of a happy life. This is one of the eight most fundamental teachings of all of Jesus' teachings. So I just kind of pause and, and hope that sinks in just a little bit more so that we all sense the gravity. We are walking on holy ground when we look at these eight, eight secrets, these eight truths. They're radical truths. The, the Jews that first heard them had a different mindset. They thought, we just need to keep 613 laws and then we can be perfect before God. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. It's not about struggling to be perfect. It's about surrendering your life to me. That's how you're saved. Why mourn? Because sin separates us from God. You've read Isaiah 59 too, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Sin enslaves us. I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. John 8, 34. Sin causes stumbling in your life and mine. Be careful, however, 
that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. I need to be careful about how I can influence other people, but I also need to be concerned about stumbling myself. Sin hardens our hearts so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's that callous idea we talked about earlier. And sin brings death, for all have sinned. And then Romans 6.23 says, and the wages of that sin is what? Death. Death. I haven't read this book, but I read a story out of a book entitled The American Fur Trader of the Far West. And I thought, you know, this is an interesting kind of an allegory of sin. It talks uh, about the, uh, the journeys of Charles uh, Larpenteur of the American Fur Company. It's actually a book based on his diaries. And the author, Hiram Chittenden, reveals that the crew on the St. Peter's boat uh, made a serious effort to prevent a smallpox outbreak on shore with, with one of the, uh, the Indian uh, groups they were working with. But when they got there, someone stole, you know, one of the blankets that one of the sick fellows had around him and ran off with it. A bunch of people came on the ship. Everything that uh, the captain tried to do to get the blanket back and to keep everybody away, none of that worked. And as a result, the entire tribe was decimated, killed off. And I thought to myself, what a terrible story. But it's allegorical with regard to sin. We human people, we human folks, we human types, seem to always be racing to get on the, the sin ship. You know, we're always trying to rationalize and trivialize and minimize, and, and we're running after things that if we're not careful will decimate us and those around us. You say, Rob, you're making way too much of this. Believe me, I've lived long enough and worked with enough people to have seen marriages fall apart, relationships fall apart, friendships fall apart, families fall apart, individual lives fall apart. And the point is none of us are perfect, but that isn't the point. The point is all of us are sinners who desperately need God's grace. And we need to take serious a smallpox of the soul called sin. Someone once said, sin will take you farther than you ever intended to go. It will take you longer than you ever intended to stay, keep you longer than you ever intended to stay, and will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. And here's the thing about sin. It's a slow fade. It doesn't come on you. At, at the boiling water stage. It's, it's the lukewarm that gets turned up over time. And it's a slow fade. It's a, it's a gradual. Most of us don't go from white to black in two steps. It's white to medium white to dark white to light gray to medium gray to other shades of gray. It's a slow fade. It's a gradual, gradual process. Our lines blur. Our moral edges dull. Our absolutes dilute and our foundation erodes. It sneaks upon us. So be alert, the Bible says. Be vigilant. The enemy is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Ask yourself today, am I rationalizing sin? Is there hidden sin in my life? 
Is there something going on in my life that I have not confessed to God and been freed from, liberated from? It's a message to every single one of us. Throughout life, we need to continually take inventory of our spirit, our soul, confess our sins to God. John Stott, a great theologian, in his book, The Cross of Christ, a book I have in my library, offers a powerful, powerful statement. This is very, very powerful, I believe. Let me share it with you. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, and God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. That is a very potent statement. And I encourage you to read that a few times. Let me close with this. How do I apply secret number two to my life? Number one, feel genuine remorse for sin, for rejecting God. That's what it is. When I sin, we, need to, we, we don't need to give ourselves a pass. Call a foul on yourself. Blow the whistle. I have sinned. When we sin, we're rejecting God. And when we reject God, we need to feel genuine remorse, just like Peter did in Luke chapter 22. Remember after he denied the Lord? You know, the rooster crows. And what does it say about Peter? He wept. Verse 62 of chapter 22 in Luke. He wept bitterly. He was devastated. He was sorrowful. That's the right response. Not, oh, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. Oh, it's not a big thing whatsoever. He wept bitterly. Have courage to confess sin like David did. Remember when David committed sin against Bathsheba? And there's a whole chapter about his confession in chapter 51 of Psalm. Well, there's another Psalm, Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11, that also talks about his confession. And verse 5 says, Then I acknowledged my sin. I love that phrase. David finally got to the point where he recognized what he did was, was deceitfully and terribly, ruthlessly bad. And he acknowledged it and said, God, forgive me. I confess my sin. Humility, contrition, honesty. You see, we never, ever outgrow. I've been a Christian for many, many, many years. You never, never outgrow the fundamentals of the faith. I need to be on a road of refinement with daily contrition and confession. For as long as I live, and so must you. Finally, follow God's plan for recovery and forgiveness. When we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. 1 John 1, 9. If I confess my sins, he will forgive me of my sins. It's an interesting passage. It says like Israel there. In 2 Chronicles 7, 14, God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves turn from their wicked way, uh, pray, and turn. 
humble themselves. If my people are called by name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. So what are those things that I need to do? I need to humble, pray, confess, and turn. Humble, pray, confess, and turn. Lord, I humble myself. I recognize I'm a sinner. I confess my sins. I come to you. I pray. I call it for what it is. Honestly, confession. And then I purpose to turn and not continue running down a road that's been washed out. That's what sin is. It kind of produces a picture of a great road to travel, very scenic, but it's washed out because at the end is destruction. I need to turn and go a different route, God's route. I don't know who I'm talking to here today, besides all of us on a general basis, of course, but but I wonder who I'm talking to. You're living a life of sin. You're trying to play one foot in your Christian life and one foot in the world. And you know that you are compromising. Maybe it's an inappropriate relationship. Maybe it's a, it's a destructive habit. Maybe, maybe there's something else going on. May I encourage you to humble yourself. Talk to God about it. Confess your sin and then turn and go a completely different direction. Let's, let's bow our hearts and heads in prayer. Lord, the promise of this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, is that they'll be comforted. In other words, happiness. Happiness. Why? Because we're forgiven. Happiness because we're set free. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who call sin, sin. Blessed are those who recognize sin in their life. Blessed are those who are devastated by sin and know that sin is devastating. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. It's one of the eight secrets to a happy life. And God, I pray for every single one of us in this place here today that we will take it so seriously that we will confess our sins to the Lord, receive his forgiveness, and move in a different direction from that point on. If you're here today, friend, and you have not committed your life to Christ, would you just join me in a simple prayer and just say, Lord, come into my life. Forgive me my sins. I want to follow you. I want to go to heaven. I recognize I'm a sinner, and I confess it to you, Lord. Forgive me of my sin. I want to go to heaven. And if you pray that prayer, would you take that connection card that Adam talked about a little earlier, either online or the, the one in front of you if you're here in person, and just say, hey, today I prayed to commit my life to Christ. I want to learn more. I want to grow. We want to be in touch with you to help you know about some of the classes and groups and opportunities that will help you grow in your faith. Maybe you're here today, and as I prayed just a moment ago, you prayed a prayer of confession, or maybe you would pray a prayer of confession right now. Lord, forgive me of my sin. If you prayed a prayer of confession, would you just tell me on that same connection card, hey, today I prayed a prayer of confession. Confessing to God my sin with the determination to turn and go a different way. It may be a hidden sin. It may be a secret sin. It may be something you've been struggling with. Maybe it's attitudes toward other people. Maybe it's bitterness resentment, 
day I gave it to God. I gave it to God. I confessed my sin. I gave it to God. And now I'm moving. I'm moving on with God. Healed, whole, healthy, and ready to be the person that he's called me to be. Lord, I pray again your blessing on every single one of us. Lord, our desire more than anything in all the world is to love you, to pursue you, to lean into Christ, to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and lead like Jesus. May people see us and say, wow, that person reminds me of Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a closing song, and then we'll be dismissed in a moment. God bless you.